Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome again to the Explaining History podcast, and today I want to look generally at some of the roots of 20th century fascism. Today we're going to be looking at Fascism and History by Roger Eatwell. It's uh, really a, a kind of a classic of the uh, study of fascism as an intellectual tradition. And one of the points that Roger Eatwell makes first off in the book is that a, a common misconception about um, uh, fascism as opposed to Marxism or liberalism or conservatism is that in the case of those three ideologies and any other major world ideology you care to think of, there are significant uh, figures, uh, significant thinkers, uh, founding intellectuals, if you will, uh, Marx, um, Burke, uh, those, sorts of, uh, those sorts of characters. John Stuart Mill for liberalism, uh, and it's assumed that there are no comparative figures in fascist thinking. This is not true. Um, it's also assumed that uh, fascist thinking doesn't really conform to um, ideological structures, that it is more um, a cult of emotion than one of thought. Again, arguably not true. Uh, the thing when you're examining a thing from the perspective of intellectual history is to assume that um, there is a kind of a, a, an, a concomitant level of intellectualism, that any set of ideas must be deep, profound, coherent, and have a, a kind of a, a robust logic. Well, again, that's not necessarily the case. Some of the the kind of the wilder contradictions of fascism um, were the product of of ideas, um, ideas believed probably by most rational individuals living in open democratic civil society to be irrational, but they are ideas nonetheless. And I think that the important challenge when looking at fascism is looking at. Um, not the Hitlers, not the Mussolinis, but the everyday fascists, people for whom um, historical events had made these extreme positions uh, seem entirely credible, uh, logical even, 
uh, and actually a, a way out of the problems that they faced. That's the challenge, really, and that's what we're going to try to fathom in uh, a series of uh, several podcasts that I want to do on the nature of fascism. One of our difficulties now is that the term fascism has been so overused, um, as it means almost nothing. Um, virtually anyone can be accused of it, whether that's a, a realistic and a valid uh, statement or not. There are those who are perhaps on the edges of fascist ideas um, who could be more aptly described as kind of extreme reactionary conservatives. Um, There are those who are uh, simply um, the proponents of uh, free market economics, who are uh, enthusiasts for kind of neoliberalism wars. Again, arguably not fascists at all. It doesn't necessarily make what they believe any more palatable. Um, and then there are those who, the, the, the kind of the conflation with fascism and statism, where basically any, any figure uh, on the left that approves of uh, expansions in nationalisation or the welfare state can also be accused of being fascist. And again, this is, this, this is a kind of a, a nonsense, and it's a kind of a convenient sort of alt-right trope that gets uh, bandied around uh, on a regular basis if you ever have the misfortune to read some of this stuff on YouTube. One of Hitler's stated aims was that he would uh, overthrow the French Revolution, um, that he would uh, mean to undo it. Uh, He put this in Mein Kampf, um, and his um, reasoning here was that the French Revolution was the end product of that period in history we thought of, think of as the Enlightenment, uh, the Enlightenment being the kind of the beginnings of modernity um, and the beginnings of uh, philosophies surrounding uh, the individual. Um, it was the uh, beginnings of uh, liberal thought where uh, individuals um, such as Rousseau um, argued uh, that the extent of the state should be limited, that individual freedoms were uh, far more important than any other consideration, uh, and that there should be um, uh, the uh, infrastructure, the, the the political and social structures present in society that preserved individual liberty. From this, uh, from the French Revolution, uh, and from Britain's Industrial Revolution, the dual revolution that Hobsbawm talks about in the Age of Revolution, uh, became, uh, grew the, the 19th century bourgeoisie, uh, those who had uh, done very well out of the expansion of political liberty across Europe and also the uh, those who did very well out of the development of kind of economic liberty. Um, the idea that um, the state was essentially meant to be a laissez-faire entity. It was not meant to become uh, involved overly in the uh, operation of society, that taxes were meant to be low, regulations were meant to be light, and that um, the uh, 19th century bourgeoisie, the capitalists, the owners of capital, could do uh, much uh, as they pleased. Uh, with uh, terrible social consequences as a result, giving rise to a trade union movement and eventually socialist parties by the later years of the 19th century. 
This, of course, uh, was an anathema to the likes of Hitler. Um, the fascists who emerged after the First World War, uh, some kind of slightly beforehand, but mainly after the First World War, um, were often united in looking back at the um, previous uh, several centuries and asking themselves essentially where everything had gone so wrong, where ideas that were conducive to national weakness, as they saw it, had emerged from uh, in Germany, in Italy, uh, and in other states where uh, fascism and right-wing authoritarianism uh, emerge uh, after the First World War, they are either the vanquished states, the defeated states, or the revanchist states. Countries like Italy and Japan that don't feel that they have got their fair share of the spoils out of the Treaty of Versailles. Fascism becomes a rejection of Enlightenment values. It becomes a, uh, a rejection of um, modernity. And the fascists position themselves as kind of counter-revolutionaries against the products of modernity, against um, liberalism and socialism, partly because both ideologies presented a common theory of humanity, um, a, no a sense of, uh, of equality, and a belief that solidarity between human beings transcended national, uh, racial or religious boundaries. Uh, fascists believed that identity could only be sought through the race or the tribe. And by the late 19th century, of course, racial thinking uh, from eugenics, uh, the eugenicist movement, um, which had uh, co-opted and kind of bastardised uh, Darwin's works, is injected into this. This is where uh, many of the uh, ideas um, that Hitler later latches onto uh, emerge from, from a kind of a, uh, a deep vein of uh, European racial thinking in the, the late 19th century. Fascists were normally better at articulating what they opposed than what they stood for, what they rejected, what they saw as the kind of the, the sins of mass society. Um, the belief that um, creative destruction was um, an integral part of any fascist project seems to be there uh, through uh, a whole range of different fascist thinkers, beginning principally with Gabriel D'Annunzio um, in 1919. Uh, D'Annunzio uh, argued uh, that the weak and corrupt parliamentary democracy in Italy needed to be purged through violence. Um, it needed to be uh, the existing order needed to be kind of overthrown, and a simple mass-based form of politics would replace it. One that, um, and here is the, where the romanticism of fascism comes in, one that would simply articulate this uh, will of the people, um, that um, any political representatives were merely um, part of a kind of a plebiscitary democracy, or not even a democracy at all. They were there simply to articulate this um, almost kind of inarticulable idea of the people's will. Uh, of course, if you're a demagogue, if, of course you're a populist, of course you're a fascist, the people's will can be what it suits you for it to be. 
Speaking of romanticism, here's what Roger Eatwell has to say about it. The Romantic movement emerged during the 18th century, largely as a response to the hyper-rationalism of the Enlightenment, and reached its high point with the works of German writers such as Johann von Goethe and Friedrich von Schelling. Among its many aspects were the worship of nature, the glorification of the national against the universal and the timeless, and the exaltation of genius over the mediocrity of the masses. The last aspect was sometimes specifically artistic, the tortured creative soul unappreciated by bourgeois society. Now, if there isn't a, a better description of how Hitler saw himself in the early years, I'd like to hear it. Uh, but it could also take on a political form in the quest for the strong leader who could lead a national rebirth. Similar diffuse hostility towards material values became increasingly translated during the late 19th century into political anti-Semitism. The Jew was pilloried as the epitome of capitalist materialism, a view particularly prevalent in the German Volkisch movement, which railed against the evils of urban industrial society. So there's a lot to unpack there, but there is this very interesting and complicated relationship between Romanticism and uh, Fascism. Romanticism is this uh, metaphysical uh, notion. It is something that exists in the realm of, of thought, uh, feeling and sentiment, not rationality, logic uh, and science. It is where kind of belief transcends and trumps all else. Um, and one of the key features of the current wave of uh, right-wing populism that we can see spreading across the world at the moment, and in some cases out-and-out -out fascism, is the idea of belief. If we simply all believe in the countries that we live in uh, a little bit harder and uh, we're a bit more passionate about it all, somehow something good will come of all of this. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Um, and this kind of irrationality, it has its roots in the Romantic period, which, of course, was this reaction to uh, universalism and individualism 
and rationality and science and modernity that emerge from the uh, Enlightenment. Why does this happen? Well, because during the Romantic period, um, people sought out new forms of um, self-expression, self-identification, as human beings always will do. There's a clear connection between nationalist and uh, fascist thoughts, but that's to suggest, that's not to suggest, I beg your pardon, that all nationalists are fascists, uh, but probably all fascists have nationalist ideas. Um, in the beginnings in the early 19th century, um, nationalism had a decidedly liberal kind of outlook. Um, during 1848, um, liberals and nationalists across Europe sought to establish uh, states um, and they sought to overthrow transnational empires like the Habsburg Empire in order to establish liberal constitutions. If you can create your own German state, you can create a liberal constitution in which uh, the state, with all its power of army and police, can actually protect individual rights as opposed to suppress them. So the, 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 um, the nation was, as far as the liberal nationalists were concerned, meant to be uh, the framework into which you, you inject liberalism. Uh, the failure of 1848, as uh, Bismarck pointed out, uh, was due to the absence of blood and iron. And Bismarck, who'd been very suspicious of nationalism as an idea, uh, actually saw an opportunity to co-opt it, to seize nationalism, and to uh, bend it for reactionary purposes. Um, re nationalism, during the late 19th century, uh, shifts towards the right. Um, Roger Eatwell writes, one of the high priests of this new nationalism was the French journalist and writer Maurice Barres, uh, who became the prophet of rootedness in Racimont, involving a mystical social union between the living and the dead, whereas early nationalism had been closely associated with modernity, this new form was highly critical of what it saw as the resulting divisive materialism. Barriers believed that the epitaph of the French had become born a man, died a grocer. Whereas the old nationalism was essentially concerned with legitimising the overthrow of regimes, this form of nationalism was obsessed with the need to secure social unity in order to prevent the collapse of states and to develop the martial values necessary to survive in war. By the 1890s, Barriers was talking of national socialism though the term was essentially manipulative for his social views were more conservative than radical. So here we've got some more fascinating stuff to uh, unpack here. The idea um, of uh, rootedness, the idea of this mystical union between the living and the dead, between the present and the past. Fascism has to feed upon its past. The idea uh, of the story that fascism invariably tells of there having been once a glorious past, but things having gone now terribly wrong, normally due to somebody like the, the Jews or socialists or some other kind of troublemaker ruining it for everybody and causing a once mighty nation, be it Italy or France or Britain or Germany, to now be uh, kind of uh, ruined and brought low. This new authoritarian nationalism that was um, part of the means by which um, leaders throughout the 19th century 
bolstered the um, support uh, for the nation states that they had created, which had sprung up uh, across Europe, and that um, was geared towards uh, ever more kind of uh, uh, aggressive and assertive um, uh, manifestations of itself as we can see from the kind of the uh, the, the, the jingoism and the, the militarism of the late 19th century it of course if you combine it with European imperialism uh, and to some degree American imperialism uh, in the very late uh, 19th and early 20th century um, it um, is of course uh, the, the kind of the, the crucible from where modern racism springs um, obviously the argument of the kind of the, the roots of kind of modern racism go far further back uh, you know all the way uh, back to the Atlantic slave trade and slightly beyond that but the late 19th century sees the emergence of a kind of a particular kind of racial thinking um, Equal writes this holistic nationalism was highly critical of liberal universalism, a feature which contributed to the rise of a new racism. Hostility to outsiders had existed since prehistoric times, and ancient Greek philosophy had demonised the barbarian other. What emerged during the late 19th century was a more systematic form of racial thinking. Two names stand out in this development, the French aristocrat Arthur de Gobineau and the Englishman Houston Stuart Chamberlain, who in later life adopted German citizenship and became an admirer of the rising young politician named Adolf Hitler. Gobineau's key work was his essay on the inequality of human races, written in the 1850s but little read until after the 1870s. He saw the world as polarised between white, yellow and black races, and argued that the motor of history was the struggle between these races. Chamberlain was deeply influenced by the nationalism uh, of the composer Richard Wagner, who became his father-in-law. His Foundations of the 19th Century, published in 1900, uh, was widely read, or more precisely, sold and talked about. Its seminal importance to the emergence of fascism, however, lies uh, in more than just its influence. It is also related to its style. For Chamberlain's arguments were not simply based on Wagnerian historical or mystical notions, he synthesised these ideas with a growing body of scientific and intellectual developments and rejected the pessimism of Gobineau. It's interesting that within a few years of the writing of the Communist Manifesto, which sets out initially that all history is the history of class struggle, that Gobineau's uh, first pronouncements in the 1850s was really that all history is the history of racial struggle. Um, these were the ideas that Hitler adhered to um, in Mein Kampf, this is um, the the kind of the, the the core operating feature of Hitler's thought that all history really is the history of racial struggle, and that racial struggle defines all aspects of material of the material world of of the universe, if you like, uh, and that the purpose of being the purpose of being is to be part of a race that is involved in a constant struggle for resources with others. And that the um, the victors, the worthy in human history and human experience, are the the martial races that can can crush others. Um, the current sort of alt right um, trope that national socialism means that the Nazis and therefore Hitler were socialists um, is, is a nonsense, really, uh, because of this this one central idea that Hitler. 
um, whilst using the term national socialism, was a racial thinker. He's not really interested in anything else. In fact, as far as Marxism went, he writes in Mein Kampf that um, the problem with democracy is that if you um, allow enough of it, you'll wind up with Marxism, i.e. you'll wind up with people sharing, voting to share society's resources uh, equally. So he was certainly, there's no evidence of any socialist thinking from Hitler. So three key ingredients we can identify here. Romanticism, uh, a rejection of the Enlightenment, a rejection of modernity, a rede rejection of rationalism for sentiment and emotion. Nationalism, a belief in the nation, a belief in the tribe. And racialism, uh, the kind of pseudo-scientific idea that there is a taxonomy of races, that there are good, better and master races, uh, and that uh, the purpose of history is to engage in racial struggle. These are the three ingredients that create fascism. And at the heart of the kind of romanticist thinking uh, was the notion of uh, the great leader. Um, the question that many fascist thinkers had in the late 19th century was that in an age defined by mass politics and socialism and mass trade unions, where uh, what was the future for the individual? And because they concluded that the, the liberal future for the individual, where all individual rights were entirely valid and uh, respected, um, that, that, wasn't where, uh, that wasn't viable either, or desirable. Um, so, as far as the future for the individual went, fascists um, in the late 19th, early 20th century concluded the, the only individual that mattered is the leader. There was the charismatic, inspired leader. Again, a, a romantic notion of the the kind of the um, the hero who could, through will and charisma and some sort of special knowledge, some special insight on uh, the nature of the people, uh, be able to uh, bring about uh, miraculous transformations in the nation simply by ordering it. Uh, these are the kind of the fantasies that the likes of Hitler and Mussolini uh, fed about themselves, uh, and that the as far as other individuals went, um, there were none. There were simply the leader and the followers. Um, again, this is a, a kind of a highly romantic notion. It's almost a kind of Rousseauian uh, notion, one um, that was in some parts uh, the origin of, of Enlightenment thought. One of the great paradoxes of the Enlightenment is it kind of does leave dotted around the intellectual landscape of Europe and uh, the New World the component parts of fascist thinking. Now we're going to continue, as I said, in the next few weeks with some other kind of dips into the origins of fascism. But I hope this is uh, useful and helps to kind of uh, start to kind of disentangle this really complicated uh, terminology uh, and ideology. Anyway, thanks very much for listening and I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. All the best. Thanks. Bye-bye. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.